You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Che. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Well, good evening. I'm going to ask you, ask you to use your imaginations for a little bit. We're going to take a little trip. We're going to travel to the African savanna. We could travel back time a little bit, back when the animals roamed in massive herds, long before the hunters came along and shot most of them. But the, uh, imagine that the sun has just risen, and you can see its gleaming light right off of the surface of the watering hole, where many animals have gathered in the early, early morning. Grazing nearby, we can see a tall, slender gazelle in the grass. Now the Lord has placed eyes on either side of her head so she can have the full, full range of vision. She can see everything. She can be vigilant. And her eyes never stop scanning the area around her, always looking for signs of danger. And she notices a rustling in the nearby grass. She lifts up her head. And now the Lord also has endowed her with ears. That can, they're large ears, and they can pick up uh, any sound, even the slightest noise. And they perk up in the direction of the sound, and finally she sees it. There's a lion slowly creeping through the grass, and her heart begins to race. She quickly re- realizes the danger that she's in. She takes a few cautious steps backward, and she prepares to flee. But it is too late. And with a mighty roar, the lion pounces towards the gazelle. And she bolts away as fast as she can. The lion is hot on her heels. His powerful muscles are propelling him forward at incredible speeds. Now the gazelle is an expert runner. She has been engineered for speed by the Lord. She's an expert at quickly and easily changing direction. She zigzags her way through the grass. She takes sharp turns around boulders trying to confuse the lion. She leaps over branches. And the lion, on the other hand, is a very formidable predator. His muscular body is also built for uh, speed and strength, allowing him to outrun and overpower most of his prey. His sharp claws and his powerful jaws are fierce weapons designed, again, by the creator to swiftly capture and kill his prey. And the chase continues, and as it goes on, the gazelle starts to get tired. And she starts, her lungs start to burn. She doesn't give up. She hopes, if she keeps running long enough, that the lion will get tired too. But finally, after a while, the lion makes his move, and he lunges towards the gazelle with his jaws open. And with one last last desperate leap, the gazelle tries to avoid the lion's grasp. But it's too late. And she feels the lion's claws sink into her flesh, and she falls to the ground, helpless. And finally, she feels the lion's jaws close around her neck. Now... I hope none of you were rooting for the gazelle. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) But um, last time I was up here, we talked about the importance of words. So can we say then, at this point in the story, can we agree that the gazelle has been overtaken? Yes. This word, overtaken, We hear this a lot in Christian circles. He was overtaken in sin. She was overtaken in sin. Or we'll say, forgive me, I was overtaken in a sin. 
But I ask, were you indeed overtaken? Do you mean that you were overtaken like the gazelle in our story? You were aware of the danger? You were vigilant, you were eager to avoid the danger and constantly on the lookout for it. And when danger presented itself, you fled from it. You availed yourself of all that the Lord provides you to escape from sin and temptation. And despite your best efforts, temptation won the race and you were overtaken in a sin. Is that what you mean when you say that you're overtaken? Or did you rush headlong into the danger? Did you rush towards the danger instead of away from it? And if that's the case, were you indeed overtaken? Like the innocent gazelle that tried to escape but was overtaken? Or were you overtaken because you made yourself an easy target by walking willingly into temptation, knowing that it could overpower you? Let's take our Bibles now. Let's turn to Acts 27. You can stay seated for this. This is going to be a long passage, so I'm not going to make you stand up for this one. Acts 27. And before we read, I want to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer even now. I'll give you a, a, just a few more moment, moments to get there. Russell, Russell, Russell. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, I ask, Lord, that uh, you be with me and help me to dispense your word as you've shown it to me, as you've revealed it to me. Help our hearts, Lord, to be open um, to your instruction, to your warning, Lord. Help us, Lord, uh, as a people to seek truth and then to apply it to our lives, Lord. Lord, we just uh, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit have reign over these next uh, moments, Lord. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we want to pick up right here in verse 7 and just follow along. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Canidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete, over against Salmone. And hardly passing it came into a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous because the past the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading of the ship and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence. Also, if by any means they might attend to Phenice, and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete, and lie toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close to by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind, Euryclidon. And when the wind was, and when the ship was caught and could not bear it up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up. They used helps undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away." So let's talk about what's happening in this passage. Paul is a prisoner. 
and he is being transported with other prisoners to Rome under the command of a Roman centurion. And so we pick up in the city of Myra on the coast of Asia Minor on the Mediterranean Sea. And in verse 10, you notice what uh, Paul says. He expresses his very deep reservations about setting sail. At that moment, he believes that it could cost them his lives. And you notice what he says, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt. Not, I fear, right? right. Not, I'm dreading, but I perceive. Paul knew something. Holy Spirit was talking to him. In verse 11, though, the Bible tells us that the centurion, however, believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And why not, right, from a, from a human standpoint? I was uh, talking about this with my daughters, and my daughter Lena said, well, why wouldn't, they listen? why wouldn't he listen to the captain and owner of the ship? And I can always count on Lena to point out the obvious. And besides, they had other reasons for not staying in the Fair Havens, reasons that made sense to the crew, right? But here's the thing. The centurion ignored the man of God and instead hearkened to the wisdom of the world, to the counsel of mankind, and it proved to be a disastrous decision, as we'll see. Now, what was Euryclidon? It's a curious name, right? Euryclidon was a typhoon uh, what we would call a hurricane, basically, that regularly appeared in the Mediterranean Sea, especially around that season. And it, its name means easterly wind and surging water. It was a known phenomenon, and any experienced sailor would have known about it. So it was not a mystery. Everybody knew about Euryclidon. Even so, the, centuri the centurion ordered the ship to sail. Now, did he know about Euryclidon? Well, he was warned, right? Paul said, bad idea, right? And the ship's captain said, don't worry about it. It'll be all right. And was the centurion, was he being brave or courageous in this moment? I mean, maybe some of us want to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? I don't know. There is a, uh, there's this meme on the internet. <laughs> I've seen it. Some, perhaps you have seen too. It says this. It says, knowing something is going to hurt and doing it anyway is courage, but so is stupidity, and that is why life is hard. <laughs> so, for the purpose of this message, I will not be preaching from the courageous side. I will be preaching from the stupid side. <laughs> the centurion made a bad decision. So following along in the story, immediately upon encountering Euryclidon, this tempestuous wind, they lose control of the ship. And they do experience, it says, a temporary lull, right, during which they can do a little bit of work. They tie ropes around the hull of the ship. That's what it means to undergird the ship so that it won't break apart. And soon they're blown back out into sea, and they quickly realize that this is no small tempest. And it drives them across the sea. It blots out the stars and the moons. And the sun, meaning they have no idea where they're going. They don't know where they're at, and they don't know which direction they're going. They have no control over the ship, and they have no hope that they will survive this. Now, the scriptures go on to talk about what measures they took, how they fasted because they had no hope and no rest, how they cast away most of the cargo, how they eventually were left with no choice but to run the ship aground. Now, pick up here in verse 40. Skip on down to verse 40, and we'll just read those two verses right there. It says, And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoised up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground 
and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So, finally, they land on the island of Melita. Now, look, I'm, I will say this, okay? The shipwreck, this particular shipwreck is often used in sermons as an example of providential direction, okay? In that, Paul went on to have a ministry in Melita. He, he did some healing. He reached a very barbaric people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is certainly true. So, and if you're, if you're preaching from Paul's perspective, that's the direction that you want to go. However, we're, we will turn our gaze back to the centurion, who is probably in a lot of trouble right now. In review, he had a responsibility. He was warned of the danger. Euryclidon, the tempestuous wind. The man of God spoke. The man, a man of the world contradicted him. And so the centurion decided to launch headlong into the danger, knowing what might happen. And the result was shipwreck. Christian, are we not just like that centurion sometimes? We hear the man of God. We're warned about the dangers of conforming to this world. We are, in a sense, told about our Euryclidon, a tempestuous wind of temptation that can blow you off course, that can rob you of your sense of direction, that can take away your hope and reason and cause your ship to run aground. To be clear, walking into this kind of temptation is not innocent. We are not innocent when we ignore the warnings. We are not ignorant of the danger. We, should, we choose, right, we choose to launch headlong into that tempestuous wind, knowing the danger, ignoring the risk. We say, well, I'll be okay. It's not that bad. Been there before. I won't give in. I'll know when to stop. I'll be strong. But Euryclidon is no small tempest. It is the tempestuous wind of temptation that is of this world. And we must not fool ourselves into thinking that we can set out into that storm without being blown off course, forced to throw precious cargo overboard, forced to visit islands that we never meant to visit, forced to take desperate measures because we no longer control our own course. Now, before we go on, I'm going to introduce three principles. And look, if you don't get anything else about out of this message, these three principles, I believe, are worthwhile in and of themselves. But principle number one, your intentions don't matter nearly as much as your actions or the effects of your actions. Alternately, we say actions speak louder than words, right? Or Preacher Gomez puts it, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. That's all saying the same thing. Now, it turned out to be a little harder to study this out in Scripture. I thought it was going to be a little easier than it turned out to be. And that's because most of the examples in the Bible where there exists a conflict between intention and results or actions, right, are such that someone may appear to be good on the outside and they're rotten and evil on the inside. That's hypocrisy. Okay, that's not exactly what I was looking for. However, the, uh, I was wanting to look at the opposite. When our intentions are good, supposedly, or when our intentions seem innocent, but the actions, or the results, are bad. And we do find that in Scripture as well. And although we often tell ourselves that it's what's on the inside that counts, it turns out that our actions reveal to others more about who we really are than whatever intentions that we may have had. 
Now we have the example, you don't have to turn there, but we do have the example in Matthew 21. We're very uh, familiar, the parable of the two sons. And Jesus tells this story where a father asked both of his sons to work in his vineyard. And one says he will work in the vineyard, but he does not, right? And the other says, I will not. But later he repents and he does it. And Jesus says, which of these did his father's will? Of course, it was the one that actually uh, worked in the vineyard. Now, the point is, what good is it to say you will do something or that you intend to do something if your actions are the opposite? What good is it to say, I meant to do that or I meant to do this if we don't, in fact, do it? Or alternately, right? What good is it to say you didn't mean to do something bad when, in fact, you did? 1 John 3.18 says this, My children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Here the apostle draws a line between what is said and what is done. In other words, let, let, let us not just have good intentions, let us do good in truth. James 1.22, I'm going to throw a lot of Bible at you all, you all are okay with that, right? Okay. James 1.22 says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Again, we see a delineation between what we actually do and what we intend to do. To have intentions to do good, but not follow up with good deeds and truth is, the Bible calls it, self-deception. How often do we hear a good sermon and we praise it, we praise the preacher, we praise God, we intend to take that message to heart and do something, but when we get home, we forget all about it. And so when a person says, well, the Lord knows my heart. He knows I intended to do good. I just got a little sidetracked. You're deceiving yourselves when you say that. You don't get credit for the good that you meant to do. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The Lord here is emphasizing the need to shine the light where men can see it. Men cannot see inside our hearts. Only God can. Therefore, it is all the more imperative that whatever good we intend, our works must match up to those intentions. It is precisely because man cannot read our hearts that we must be vigilant about our testimony, about our actions. And so that saying that we throw around, it's the thought that counts. No, it doesn't. Right. Doesn't. Not, not, not when it comes to good. Actions speak louder than words or thoughts. So put that in your right pocket. Actions far outweigh intentions. That's principle one. Principle two. God lets you know, and this is for the child of God, by the way. Should clarify that. God lets you know where you stand before he lets you fall. It is imperative that we understand, that we know, and that we trust that God deals with His children differently than those who are not His children. If you are saved, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, then you are a child of God. That's just John chapter 1. To them gave He power to become the sons of God, and even to them that believe on His name. Amen. And we know Hebrews 12.8, or we ought to, okay? If you've been around church any, any amount of time, you've heard this one. But if He be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. God chastises His children when they sin. If you are not chastised of God over your sin, you are not His child. That's right. It's that simple. Look into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.5, God is speaking to the, the, to the children of Israel, speaking to His people, and He says this, Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. 
there the Lord saying that I'm going to be a father to you. And so when, if the Lord is your father, then he will chasten you over your sin. Listen to David in Psalm 38, 1 through 2. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Listen to this one. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and, the, and thy hand presseth me sore. You know what that means? It means you're going to feel it. When you are in sin, when you're headed down the wrong path, God is going to deal with you, and you are going to know it. There is no way that a child of God can slide off into sin and self-destruction without being dealt with in some way. There are going to be warnings. There are going to be signs. It's going to be a sermon just like this one. Okay. Revelation 3.19. This is the Lord speaking, but really he's just quoting Proverbs 3.12. It's identical. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Well, if God shows you something, maybe something you hadn't considered before, when the true face of your sin is revealed to you, you must repent. And finally, in 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? This draws a very clear line okay, between God's people and the rest of the world. God's love is an exacting love. If you've been in my Sunday school class, you've, you've heard this. I bring this up several times. What does that mean, is exacting love? You all know what an exacto knife is? What do we use it for? We use it to cut things away. God's love is an exacting love. God's love cuts things away from our lives that, that are harmful to us. And once you are saved, you will see that God loves you too much to leave you the way that he found you. And he loves you too much to let you fall away into sin without some kind of warning. So, put that in your left pocket. God lets you know where you stand before he lets you fall. What was in our right pocket? Actions far outweigh intentions. Okay, so we're out of pockets in the front, but we still have our back pockets. So here's one more principle that we need to remember, and that's this. There are two kinds of belief, and we need them both. There are two kinds of belief, and we need them both. There is belief that is born by faith. I mentioned this one first because I would argue this is the more important one. Uh, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, there is no hope in, of eternal life. And faith is not blind. The Bible describes it as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Last I checked in my 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary, substance and evidence are concrete things. Yes. <laughs> Belief that consists in faith involves implicit trust and a commitment to the implications of that trust. What is implicit trust? Implicit trust is like this. If I say, Pastor, I trust, I trust you implicitly, that means I trust you without saying. You don't have to ask me. I trust you. It's, it's, it's tr trust that does not have to be explicitly expressed. Belief that consists in faith. So, if, for example, when you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are committing to all the implications of that belief. I wish I had time to expand on that a little bit more, but we really need to be moving on. Uh, but that's, that's one belief, okay? There's belief that is born on faith, okay? Then there's everyday belief, okay? This is, uh, consists mostly of intellectual acceptance, okay, of the facts. Um, for example, 
I believe that the 10.30 train will arrive shortly before 10.30 and pick me up, right? Because it always has. Because that's what it's supposed to do. Because that's what it says on the schedule. Okay, that's because I've never had any physical reason to believe that it won't arrive at that point in time, right? Barring some unforeseen circumstance. In other words, all of the circumstantial evidence, whether it's based on sight or smell or sound or concrete reason, points to the fact of something. Another way to describe this kind of belief is belief that is demanded by the evidence. You don't really have a reasonable choice in the matter. Once you've seen the evidence, you're logically compelled to believe it. Now look, you can choose to be unreasonable and reject it, but you have not negated the belief in a way that affects anyone else, only yourself, right. only your perception. But this everyday belief, this intellectual belief, this is not faith. This is different from faith. Right. C.S. Lewis points out in his book, Mere Christi Christianity, that this is why you don't get to choose God when he comes crashing into your existence at the end of all things. Mm -hmm. Neither do you get to choose God once you are summoned into his presence. Because what choice do you have then? Right. What good does it say, the way he puts it, what good does it say that you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up? Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is not how we want to come to a belief in God. Right. See, everybody is going to believe in God. Everybody. Right. You're either going to come to believe in Him by faith or this other way. Still, that being said, um, we still need everyday belief. We need intellectual belief, okay? We couldn't function in our world without it. There will always be points in our lives when the evidence we encounter demands belief, when it would be utterly unreasonable to proceed having rejected that evidence. And this happens in every sense of our existence. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later. I'm going to leave off for now. So there's our three uh, principles, actions, far outweigh intentions. God lets you know where you stand before he lets you fall. And there are two kinds of belief. We need them both. Okay, so let's get back then to our passage. Get back to Euroclidon. What is your Euroclidon? What is our Euroclidon? What is that tempest that you know is dangerous, yet it still drives you further into sin, further into the world, sets you on islands that you never planned to visit? Now look, there is temptation that is personal and individual, okay? I could... If I wanted to, I could describe Euroclidon as a metaphor for all of the very specific situations, the different types of scenarios and places, the different kinds of entertainment, all manner of personal idolatries that could constitute your personal Euroclidon, your personal tempest of temptation that you know will trip you up every time. But instead of avoiding it, you walk right into it. I could do that. However, that would be a very long list. It would take a long time to complete. So instead, I'm going to leave it up to you to determine what your particular Euroclidon is. I suspect that you've already thought of it in the space of this sermon. I suspect you've thought of it several times. Even I expect that if you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit perhaps is even already dealing with you about it. But I want to turn attention to now to a different kind of temptation. It's a more general and universal type that affects every single one of us. It's one that we should not be ignorant of. 
And yet I see so many Christians carrying on with their lives as if they do not heed God's warnings about this. And that is the temptation that is of this world. Not the individual situations that trip us up in unique ways, okay, but rather the kind that is all pervasive, the kind that is ubiquitous. Y'all like that word? It's a nice 50 cent word. It means that it appears everywhere we go, like traffic lights or painted lines on the road or trees that line the avenue. There's so much part of our existence that we barely pay any special attention to it. And temptation like that, we, it would almost seem like it's inescapable, but it's not. I believe we can see that. There is a great Euryclidon embedded into every facet of our society. And we must do two things as Christians. We must be vigilant, and we must make a decision. Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. On down towards the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 2. Picking up in verse, we will, I'll read verse 15 and 16. Very familiar passage. It says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The Bible's making a very clear distinction here. Now the word world, when we come, when we come across the word, word world in the Bible, it, it can mean one of three things, okay? It could mean the physical world, as in God made the world, right? It could mean the people in the world, as in God so loved the world, yes. right? Or it, could, it can mean um, the, uh, the world system in which we live. And in this case, in this particular passage, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the world system in which we live. And what does it tell us about this system? It tells us that the centerpiece values of this system, of this world, are two things. Lust and pride. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for paying attention. All right. So as a Christian, you're going to have to make a decision. To what extent am I going to participate in this world system? To what extent am I going to let worldly values dominate my thoughts, my behaviors, my decisions? And furthermore, you need to understand that it is a system. We're not talking about, in this particular case, I'm not talking about incidental lust, accidental lust, lust that falls out of a tree or lust that you stumble over going down the grocery aisle. We're talking about systematic lust, systematic pride. Lust and pride that are so ingrained into every aspect of our society that it pervades everything at every moment often in ways that we don't even consciously think about, but we need to. Let's talk about the Christian perspective, the perspective that we should have as Christians. Let me make this statement about our perspective. Sometimes, or I should say oftentimes, in order to gain the right perspective, you need to ask the right questions. Let's say that again. In order, oftentimes, in order to gain the right perspective, you need to ask the right questions. So often our perspective is wrong because we are asking questions that are self-centered instead of God-centered. We frame our questions in the light of our own opinions instead of being rooted in biblical wisdom. 
We go about measuring the world with the yardstick that is actually ourselves. We judge the Bible by the lens of our own experience. And so we need to ask questions like this. Why does the world encourage this behavior? What are the effects of this behavior? When I engage in this behavior, what signal am I sending? Here's a good question. Are there behaviors that the world encourages women to participate in? That would be ridiculous if a man were to do the same things. That's a good question. I encourage you to think about that question. I'm not going to get into it right now this second. But likewise, likewise, does the world encourage men to do things that would be absurd if women were to do them? Okay, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, both men and women are targeted by the world in this matter of lust. Women are encouraged, to, are encouraged to engage in a certain set of behaviors that have at their root cause only one main objective, and that is to encourage lust. Whether it's how certain kinds of makeup is worn or clothing is worn or celebrated, encouraged, how much flesh is exposed, on and on and on. There's a whole myriad of things, right? But there's a common message in it all, and that is the world is teaching women that these behaviors are empowering and liberating. That sexual attractiveness is a virtue to be praised and expressed wherever they go. That's not what the Bible teaches. Bible teaches women that they should be modest and sober-minded and circumspect about what their behaviors are affirming. Remember, it's not about your intentions. It's about your actions and the effect of your actions. Right pocket, remember? And men, on the other hand, we are fed a pack of lies. We are bombarded with unbiblical messages all day long, monstrous lies in the form of advertisements, social norms that have been eroded, a celebration of immodesty, and aphorisms, sayings that have leaked into their everyday existence. You ever heard this one? It's okay to look so long as you don't touch. I grew up with that one. I remember hearing that one. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? You hear what that's saying? If you make that covenant with your eyes, not only should you not be looking, you shouldn't even be thinking about it. Men are taught that standards of modesty only apply to women. That is a lie. That's right. That's an absolute lie. You, I'm not going to read it right now. If you read Isaiah 47, 2 and 3, if you read Exodus 28:42, it's talking about um, God's standard for nakedness. We say that nakedness begins at the thighs. Then the, these, are, these are scriptures that deal with it. But the point here is that the standard of what God considers to be nakedness is the same for men and women. Yes. There is no difference. So consider your ways then, Mr. Shorty Shorts, right? That's right. Amen. Think again, Mr. Skinny Pants. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Open Shirt or worse, Mr. Shirtless. God is not impressed and those behaviors do not honor him. Now look, these are just a few examples, okay? I could go on and on, right? But what are we talking about here? We're talking about you are Clyden, the tempest of temptation that comes from the world we live in. And the distinction that I'm making, the point that I'm trying to drive home here, is that it is not innocent temptation. We are not ignorant of the world system, or at least we should not be. The system that encourages idolatry, 
in modesty, lust, and pride. Now look, I had a different version of this sermon already written last week. But, in it I went into much sharper detail about the actual, physical, particular nature of some of the world's temptations. However, I was asked to consider by someone I trust greatly uh, whether or not I should go into such detail. Should I risk some people feeling like they were being personally raked over the coals? Maybe even getting deeply offended. Maybe even walking out the door. Because we've seen a lot of that over the years. So I ask you, is that where we are as a church? Is that where we're at? Can I not have a frank discussion with you about the nature of sin and temptation without worrying that some of you are going to get angry and walk right out the door because I told you the truth? Is that where we're at as a church? Are you sure? Years ago, there was a popular song. I don't remember the name of the artist. I'm not going to give her any glory anyway. But it was called, the name of the song, it was called One of Us. And I bring it up because it asks a deep question. And the singer asked, in the title, as for the title, the singer asked, what if God was one of us? Which is ironic because he was one of us for a little while. Uh, and I don't think that she was a believer. But that's not the question I'm referring to. In the song, she asks this. And it's, oddly enough, it's directed at the unbeliever. She says, if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing it meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? Do you see what she's asking here? She's talking about belief that is demanded by the evidence she knows that even though she herself is not a believer, if she could see God's face, she would have to believe. It's not a matter of faith at that point. It's time to face the facts. And so I would ask you this. We're coming close to the end here. Um, I would ask you this then. If our sin had a face, its true face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it? If seeing it meant that you would have to believe in things like consequence and things that lead to destruction and even death. Seeing it meant that you had to believe that you are offending a living God. We worry about offending people. What about God? If seeing it meant that you would have to experience rightful shame and sorrow over your sin, would you want to see it? If so, then we must, we must, we must be serious about this matter. We must every day determine what is of the Father and what is of the world. And remember what's in our left pocket. God lets you know where you stand. You are being warned. And what will you do with this warning? Remember the centurion in our text passage. 
On the one hand, it's the warning from the man of God. On the other hand, is the world saying, ah, oh, don't listen to him. You'll be all right. You're doing okay. Ignorance is not an excuse. I don't think it ever was. You are here tonight. We must gird up the loins of our mind, as the Bible tells us, and be sober and hope to the end that we will stand before Christ one day and give an account of how we redeem the time. One last passage. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You all have heard this passage before, but maybe in light of all that we've talked about tonight, maybe it'll sound a little different this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse starting in verse 14. I'm going to read through verse 18. Follow along, please. Verse 14, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, for all these reasons that were just spoken, wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughter, saith the Lord Almighty. We are called on to be sober, to be vigilant, to be like the gazelle in our story, remember? God has given us eyes too, and He's given us ears, and many means to avoid temptation. He has given you this Bible. Amen. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He imbues us with knowledge and wisdom if we just ask Him. And our adversary, He is that lion roaming about, seeking whom, may, whom he may devour. Do not walk toward him and be overtaken in foolishness. Flee from the sin of this world. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.